The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by Melrose Health. Founded in 1979, Melrose Health has been delivering improved health over three decades by developing natural, delicious and innovative health foods from the best natural and organic ingredients. Their healthy kitchen oils range has just launched and includes my favourites, liquid coconut oil, grass-fed ghee and avocado oil. Visit melrosehealth.com.au or check out at Melrose Health on Instagram to learn more. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning into today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In episode 227 of The Real Food Real, we discuss the outdated model of acidity, reflux, and proton pump inhibitors. You will learn the importance of acid, how to support your acid production, how to naturally manage reflux and heartburn, why alkaline waters are complete BS, and so much more. To find out more about personalized support with your digestive health, please book a complimentary 15-minute consultation via bit.ly forward slash TNN online. Hi, Steph. Hi, team. Um, Welcome back to another episode of The Real Food Real. Today's conversation is quite a big one. We do have a lot potentially that we're going to unpack today, but perhaps it's also going to open up the space for a future episode. Um, So if anybody has questions after listening to this episode, please jot them down. Please email them into us at The Natural Nutritionist so we can get to a part two. Um, But today is Steph and I's discussion on the age-old acid versus alkaline debate, one that we're both really passionate about because I know we both get a little bit riled up when we see alkalizing products being marketed on the shelves at supermarkets and health food stores. Um, you know, there, there is a lot of debate around whether we should be buying these alkalizing products. So today's conversation is actually around acid and why acid is actually not a bad thing in our body and partic- particularly in parts of our digestive system. Yeah, for sure. A very important conversation and I can't sort of kickstart things without bagging out alkaline water. I think, (laughs) you know, um, as you guys will learn today, acid is very, very important. And the stomach, our stomach in particular, is acidic for many essential reasons. So if you're buying alkaline water, it's literally only alkaline until it hits your stomach. So it's really quite a waste of money. Um, And just one of those other marketing 
myths and, and areas that we need to be savvy about rather than spending our money on unnecessary things. Mm, you're right. It's only alkaline until it hits your stomach. Our, you know, our digestive system is basically one long tube that goes from our stomach to our bottom. Um, and along that tube, there are various, various degrees of acidity. And our stomach is the most acid part of that tube. Yeah, absolutely. And for a very good reason. Now, I actually sort of wanted to take a step back and just talk about um, maybe the the other reason why we were thinking about this as being such an important podcast conversation because of what we're seeing in clinic with the increased use of PPIs or proton pump inhibitors. Yeah. Now, do you want to share your personal story there? Uh, yeah. So my personal story with proton pump inhibitors goes back probably... 12 years ago, 12 years ago, I was young. I had just finished university. Um, I was in the doctor, in the doctor's clinic with like incredible stomach pain, um, nausea, cramping, you know, I took myself to emergency because of this. Um, I was initially told that I had pancreatitis, um, but then it was discovered that I had gastritis. Um, so I was, you know, put on proton pump inhibitors, this wasn't something we learned about at university, no. you know, despite studying exercise and nutrition, you know, we did not, we did not learn about this at university. So, you know, I followed the advice of the professional, um, of the individual with the most experience in the room mm-hmm. and I was put on proton pump inhibitors and I was on them for at least 12 months, mm. 12 months of quite a strong dose of proton pump inhibitors before I started to do my own research um, into, into them. And decided to come off them. And that really, I already had a troubled digestive system, but you know, I had a lot of issues off the back of those proton pump inhibitors. We're talking digestive challenges, we're talking um, parasites. So other things that we'll talk about in this conversation, but mm. I experienced it all. So when people do come in, um, having been told they need to go on proton pump inhibitors, I do like to, to start the conversation around, okay, well, initially, why were you put on them? And then what can we start to do differently so that you can create an exit plan and come off them? Yeah. The other thing that's changed in the last 12 years is that proton pump inhibitors used to be prescription only, whereas yeah. you can actually now buy them on the shelf, like at the chemist. They're almost sitting there on the exit bench, like as you're paying, you can, you can buy them. So, of course, they're being used more now because when things aren't prescription only, suddenly people think, oh, they must be okay for me. They must be safe. Yeah. And it's, again, that that old model of, of reflux or acid that we'll talk about. But I, you just made me think that I don't have a personal experience, mm. but someone very dear to me has actually been taking proton pump inhibitors for over 40 years. And what makes me think that, you know, you're really lucky that it was only quote unquote 12 months, although there's damage that's being done, you know, I see this in my clients as well as in my personal life, like for over 40 years of suppressing your acid with pharmaceutical drugs is bloody hard to undo. So the other reason why I want to have this conversation today is so that people don't take something that they don't need to take for over 40 years and find it almost impossible to reverse mm-hmm. you know 12 months or a couple of months or even just a prescription that you might have just filled before learning that there is another way is reversible that's what's really really important to understand we can fix the gut and the underlying mechanisms and 
remove the need for pharmaceutical intervention in this case. Mm. So for everybody who's listening, who's, you know, perhaps in that, in those, that, that's, that school that thinks that, well, our client is better, um, or perhaps for those people who have had stomach acid concerns and perhaps had that conversation with the doctor about PPIs, why is stomach acid so important? Why do we not need to demonise um, this, this product that we create naturally in our body? Yeah, like I think about the stomach acid in so many ways, but sort of top level it's definitely breakdown of food. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we need that, that really acidic pH to break down our food in the stomach. You know, we know digestion starts in the mouth, but that is mostly carbohydrates via the production of salivary amylase, the enzyme that breaks down carbohydrates in the mouth. But, you know, once the food hits the stomach, there's a big breakdown role. And you can think about these proteins that we're eating or foods that really do need quite amount of quite a considerable amount of breakdown to access the nutrients from this food. We need acid in the stomach to achieve that or we're just not going to get the nutrients out of the food that we're consuming. Yeah, you know, we used to say you are what you eat. We now say you are what you digest and absorb. Mm -hmm. And first of all, if you're not able to break down the food that you eat, then you're not going to be able to digest and absorb the food Mm -hmm. that you eat. So stomach acid is needed for that breakdown, that nutrient assimilation. Yeah, 100%. I think that's definitely number one. But it's a really big defense mechanism. You know, the acid is very protective for that reason. Like what can thrive in the stomach? Obviously the food's able to be broken down, but things that could otherwise impact our digestive health cannot thrive in the stomach. You know, it's a pathogenic defense from preventing bacterial overgrowth or parasites um, and really is that defense mechanism from the outside world. Yeah. So for all those people who ask the question in clinic, you know, why me? Why have I got the parasite? Mm -hmm. Why have I got the dysbiosis? Mm. Well, you know, do you have a history of low stomach acid? That could be a reason for it. That's very true. And I talk about my clients, like I always just think of one typical example. We've all been on holidays, let's say it's Bali or India or somewhere similar where there's that high risk of getting some kind of gastrointestinal issue. And there'll be two people eating the same food, drinking the same water or brushing their teeth, whatever it might look like, swimming in the same legs, and that one person gets sick because they're not resilient enough. And definitely we can look back to their history, whether it is low stomach acid caused by PPIs or other reasons which are important to explore. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Like low stomach acid is not going to be the only reason that you know, one person comes away unscathed and the other person doesn't. There's a lot of there's a lot of other things that we have to take into consideration, like the immune system and the microbiome. But of course, low stomach acid is it's a defense. It's a defense mechanism against parasites, bacteria, pathogens. Yeah, I was just thinking that before we go through the other couple of reasons about why stomach acid is important, just for those that might not be on PPIs, let's just think about like in your example. Can you look back and think why you were experiencing what you're experiencing? Was it stress? Because I think that's a common reason that we see people experiencing these these upsets. Yeah, um, stress is absolutely a common mm. reason. And for me, there probably was an element of stress, mm. you know, having just finished uni at mm. that age and figuring out what I was going to do with my life. Um, 
generally a a type individual so probably putting a lot of pressure on myself with what I was going to do for the rest of my life for yet so yeah I was definitely stressed in that sense but I was also stressing my body out in other ways um believe it or not you know back in my 20s I probably didn't sleep as much as I Mm. should have and I probably drank more than I should have and I probably didn't eat as well as I should have um and you know some people might think, oh, my God, I can't believe a nutritionist is saying this. But, you know, in my early 20s, I was still under the influence of the people around me mm. and what life is like when you're 20. And so I was putting my body under a lot of stress, um, not sleeping enough, not eating the right foods, and also probably exercising more than I should. Yeah, that absolutely. Age. And that's not uncommon. You know, we've all got a history. And I think poor eating habits are a big one that we see, like, stressed eating on the run, eating over the emails, not chewing your food properly, um, really basic stuff that we forget about its significance or those habits and how they are, how they are so important to create the, even what I was speaking about before, the start of digestion in the mouth, which also will stimulate acid production, which mm. is very important for the ongoing role of having the right stomach acid Mm. so speaking about ppis again you know the old model was that they were being prescribed for reflux because reflux was caused by high stomach acid Mm. but sadly it's been proven to be completely upside down so the reason why we're seeing reflux is because there is not enough stomach acid to break down the food so for some people, it's it's coming back up quite literally. There are mechanisms that occur, um, damage to certain mechanisms in the body like the migrating motor complex. But can you imagine that if you've got low stomach acid, which is causing reflux, and then you're taking an acid-suppressing drug, yeah. I mean, you're never going to get better because you're suppressing the issue that, that has caused the symptom in the first place. Mm, yeah. So it really is about acknowledging the significance of acid And if you have been prescribed a PPI, not looking for that Band-Aid type solution, but taking a deeper dive to look for why your stomach acid is so low in the first place after you've acknowledged that reflux is not caused by high acid, which is that fallacy that's so important to break down. Yeah, yeah. Um, There are some other contributors to the reflux, aren't there? So low stomach acid can be one of those contributors to reflux. Um, but there are other things that people should be looking for if they are experiencing reflux. Yeah, so that's things like pathogens. So there are things like H. pylori, which can contribute to that, um, you know, that heartburn or, um, or inflammation there in, in the esophagus, which can lead to that pain. Um, we also know bacterial imbalance in the small intestine. Mm-hmm can predispose to that reflux taking place and acid making its way from the stomach into the esophagus. And that bacterial imbalance, SIBO, is something that has been talked a lot about on the show already. And, my God, we're treating it so frequently in clinic. Um, So there are other things that contribute to reflux, which is why it's really important to not just look at the Band-Aid and not just put a, a PPI in place, but to talk to your um, your health professional, you know, your your teammate um, about what could be causing the reflux. Yeah, absolutely. And it's to use that more holistic model as well rather than, you know, I think for so long we've looked at the human body as like separate organs, yeah. you know, rather than thinking about the, 
us as a whole. You know, everything is so intricately related and there are flow on effects mm. and you, you have to take a step back and look at that holistic view. Like people are quite surprised to be prescribed 20 chews per mouthful. <laughs> but so simple. And like, I ask you, if you haven't done the experiment before, start eating like you normally would and count how many chews you are actually yeah. doing per yeah. mouthful because that's the number one thing. Like I've had literally people come back to me and say that has changed their entire digestive symptom, whether it was bloating or, you know, something in that sort of typical IBS or irritable bowel type um, bucket per se. And it's so basic, it's free, but it's so yeah, foundational. Yeah, yeah. Imagine going, imagine going down the route of using a pharmaceutical for 12 months only to learn that you potentially could have avoided that situation through just chewing your food more. Mm. Um, but I often say that digestion starts before the mouth. Mm. It begins when we actually look at our food or smell our food because that's when saliva production starts to take place. So, you know, in this day and age, do we actually take this time, time to stop and look at our food before we tuck into it or smell mm. our food or appreciate, appreciate our food before we tuck into it? That's even a little exercise that people can do. I love that. And it's the whole, the diaphragmatic breathing before the yes. meal. So we stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system because all of us run in that sympathetic nervous system for a large proportion of our day and that's our fight flight or freeze you know it's definitely not where our body is primed to digest food and get nutrients and and you know essentially um complete that whole process so the breathing or i love what you say digestion begins before the mouth because it's the behaviors that you initiate to start your meal and Really, it is about the physiology of stimulating that parasympathetic nervous system so you can break down your food more efficiently. Yeah, yeah. And some of you may have heard it referred to as the rest and digest mm. state. But when we're in that parasympathetic state, that's when we can prioritize or our body can prioritize blood flow to the digestive organs and the release of digestive enzymes and stomach acid. And we come back around to overcoming the issue of low stomach acid just through simply being in this parasympathetic state when we're eating. So cool. I love it. And, and something that we all forget to do. So some real takeaways there for everyone so far is what you're doing before your meal. So whether it's the smelling or the gratitude or the breathing practices, and then it's the testing of the 20 chews per mouthful. So mm. take that away for your homework so far. Yeah. But let's circle back around to some other reasons why acid is so important. Because remember, it's been demonized for so long and there's alkaline products everywhere we're now all having this huge epiphany as to how how wrong we've got it and how important stomach acid is. So breakdown of food, um, our defense mechanism, what else? Yeah, so coming back to what we were talking about before, mm. that intra-abdominal pressure. So reflux is this situation whereby acid is making its way from the stomach into our esophagus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so our stomach is designed to deal with this level of acidity. Mm -hmm. We've got this beautiful mucus layer that, that protects us from that acid, but our esophagus is not designed to deal with that. So when the acid makes its way to our esophagus, we feel the pain. It doesn't feel great. But the acid making its way to our esophagus is due to this change in intra-abdominal pressure. Yeah, so the valve between the stomach and the esophagus becoming dysfunctional mm. and not just being one way but two way, yeah. essentially. Um, and so it's the pressure in the stomach um, that, that can cause that. And low stomach acidity has been shown to contribute to intra-abdominal pressure. Wow. That makes a lot of sense. And obviously then that's that mechanism is to 
why the the reflux is traveling up rather upstream essentially rather than downstream mm, yeah yeah mm. but it's really scary you know you you take these these medications to downregulate acid production and then well, you're perpetuating the problem by downregulating the acid production because you could be again feeding that intra-abdominal pressure yeah and that sure. reflux for sure. So lots of reasons why we want to investigate things a little bit further rather than just, you know, treating it with um, a Band-Aid type solution. And in this case, it's particularly damaging because it is achieving the opposite effect. Mm-hmm. So I really want to talk about what else we can do to support our stomach acid because it's not just having reflux. Obviously, if you do have reflux, know that it can be addressed naturally um, and the degree of what you need to do to treat that definitely depends on your overall health and, and microbiome health, but also, as we've mentioned, how long you've been taking um, PPIs for. But we all need stomach acid. So I really want to cover off other ways that we can naturally support stomach acid. Everyone acknowledging how significant it is to have the right level of pH in the stomach. Yeah, absolutely. Because again, highlighting the fact that the stomach acid is there as a defense mechanism to mm-hmm. break down food. So yeah, it's not just whether or not you've got reflux, it's about whether or not you're priming your stomach to be able to do those other things that we've talked about. Yeah, absolutely. So chewing is number one. I think you guys are pretty across how um, passionate we are about your food behaviours. But I like to also recommend the use of apple cider vinegar. Love apple cider vinegar. Yeah. Again, a very basic um, intervention per se. You might already be using it as a salad dressing, but getting into a really nice habit of having it before a meal, so 15 to 30 minutes before a meal, is going to act to start to prime the natural production of enzymes to help break down your food and to balance the pH in the stomach. Mm. So if you've ever tried it before, you know that it can be quite strong when it's straight. By all means, you can shot it if, if that's your cup of tea per se, but most people quite like it diluted. So it's a tablespoon of apple cider vinegar in a small amount of filtered water and just drink that maybe even while you're preparing your meal or you can set an alarm 30 minutes before that meal time. When, how many times a day, I usually get asked. You can definitely do it multiple times a day before every meal is probably the ultimate goal. But, you know, if you're just looking to make a start, then before the first meal of the day is going to be more beneficial because if you think about it, you've been sleeping and resting and repairing and your body's not primed to be digesting immediately. Um, now, if you're fasting, it's a different conversation altogether, but still as a, as a ritual, outside of being able to that first meal of the day can be very helpful. Yeah, you can. And it's, there's a couple of mechanisms at play there, like you mentioned, but one of the ones that we were going to come to is the bitter nature of the apple cider mm-hmm. vinegar and the ability that bitters have to stimulate the vagus nerve, which is what stimulates all the production of um, our beautiful digestive enzymes and support. Um, and that's probably one of the other reasons why low stomach acids is, a, is of concern these days is because the bitters have been stripped from our diet to some degree, unless you're on a beautiful real food template, which like 95% of you listening today are, of course. Um, but, you know, the bitters, the bitters in, in vegetables um, that we just don't have of, as much of today. Trying yeah. to think of other really good examples of bitters that people can use. Well, I mean, there are, there's literally the supplement herbal bitters that is, is useful digestively as well. That's something that you can look at. Um, but 
as I always tend to suggest with supplements, it's good to get some practitioner support so that you know about dosage and timing and things like that. But um, yeah, anything bitter is going to be really good for your digestive system. Mm. So that applies to your food choices as well. Yeah, absolutely. And there are other things we like to use in clinic. Like I definitely get some amazing benefits with hydrochloric acid or it's betaine hydrochloride. It's sold in many different forms. Um, and, you know, brand specific that will be quite um, individual but I like to do it before a meal again priming the body stimulating the vagus nerve setting up that digestive process so that could be something that's really beneficial um, especially in those that have diagnosed low stomach acid or lots of obvious symptoms of low stomach acid or a history of proton pump inhibitors adding in some acid forming supplements can be really beneficial pre food or pre-digestion and i guess depending on the severity of the severity of the um the symptoms would depend on how frequently they were used right like whether it's Mm. every meal whether it's before large meals protein rich meals that would have an impact onto the frequency yeah for sure and that's why i think it's really relative you might before you start you might be writing a bit of a symptom diary and working out when you get these symptoms. Is it the pain? Is it constipation? Is it reflux? What what is it that you're you're noticing and when? So what meals? Is there just one meal of the day? Is it every meal? Is it protein? Like you say, overeating perhaps (laughs) will be a prime suspect. But, yeah, ideally treating what your body is or how your body is responding um, and just paying attention because that will change with time as well. Yeah, I love that suggestion of creating a diary mm. because it's so, so helpful um, knowing what the, what your potential triggers are and documenting how long after mm. you've eaten you start to feel those symptoms can be the ticket to, un, you know, unravelling what the cause is for your, for your symptoms. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Simple but not easy. I think it's one of those things that we all could acknowledge you know, it's important, but we get a little bit lazy or we reprioritize. Um, and then when someone asks you, I know, when you did think. you get the stomach pain? You're like, I don't even know what day it is. So writing it down can be really helpful. Same with food diaries. <laughs> yeah, precisely. And from a practitioner's point of view, like how, how lovely is it to have that information in front of you um, in consultation rather than like trying to backtrack and piece things together? Yeah, exactly, fact. exactly. Or, or, you know, there was this competition online in one of um, our practitioner groups I'm involved in and long story short, it, it was the, the practitioner was speaking about like, don't you hate it when the client's leaving the consultation and they tell you this piece of information oh. that you wish you knew about like an hour ago and mm. so writing it down means that the practitioner has all the information that they need to treat you to the best of their ability rather than finding out as you leave or even worse in an email a few Afterwards. days later. Oh, BTW, I have a UTI. <laughs> you know, so jot it down and get the most out of your consult and allow your um, practitioner to help you the most. But um, also how we can support natural um, acid production, I think is beautiful with herbs. You know, mm, again, mm. we've ignored the role of nature for so long and unfortunately been blinded by big pharma, but now we know there are beautiful herbs like globe artichoke, fennel, chamomile, licorice, turmeric, they do such um, a wonderful job of supporting our gastrointestinal system, downregulating inflammation, improving the balance of the pH and they're 
not going to have side effects or long-term damage and um, something that you could definitely work with a practitioner to get more personalized prescription on. Yeah, I definitely work with a practitioner on the the herbal side of things. Mm. Um, just so you know, you're getting the right blend and mm. you're getting the right dosage and you're using it for, you know, the right right period of time. Um, but definitely there's some beautiful herbs to use as a starting point um, to support with your with your stomach, your acid production, um, and your mucous membranes. Mm. And then of course diet, like we have, I guess we've scooted over diet Mm. so far because we do assume that most of you listening have a, a really great real food template, but vegetables are number one here, you know, bitter vegetables as well. Mm. Things like your dandelion greens, your, um, your rocket, Mm. your, what did I hate when I was a child? Brussels sprouts, yeah. you know, probably one of the most bitter vegetables mm, for a very good reason. Well, yes. Yeah. Um, but getting plenty in the way of non-starchy vegetables into your diet is so, so important um, for helping to, to maintain stomach, stomach health. Yeah. But I think the overarching message does also come back to what we speak about a lot. You know, obviously if you've had a history of PPIs, it's going to be quite clear that you need some of this support and I would encourage you to work with a practitioner to do so. Um, but I still think it's really important to get some inform- get some more information as to what your overall gut health is doing. You know, we always say test, don't guess. Um, hopefully you guys have some great takeaways today as to some really top level changes that you can start to implement but ultimately you really need to know what's going on at a deeper level you know i think we've mentioned briefly h pylori you spoke about the small intestine overgrowth or SIBO. we speak to you guys about your gut health so much but you know i think it's such an important area of health we know that all health starts in the gut so too does all disease um so why guess you know by all means start with some of these natural strategies but i think testing is so so important don't you agree yeah absolutely and Look, for, for a lot of people, particularly that come into clinic with reflux-type symptoms and digestive challenges, um, I find that doctors and, and and particularly gastroenterologists, if people have looked at those already, are good at testing for H. pylori. Mm. So it's usually ruled out by the time people come into our doors. Yeah. Um, but looking at the small intestine or looking at the microbiome, um, in the large intestine, they're without doubt have not been looked at. No, very rarely. And it's the same with constipation. I get so many people coming in with constipation that have been prescribed Movicol or whatever it might be in terms of a laxative. And um, we haven't taken the time to understand the mechanisms behind constipation. So even top level, if you think about low acid, poor breakdown of food, that's going to impact your transit time. Mm. And for a lot of people, that can lead to constipation, which isn't going to fix itself. Um, we all know the dangers of constipation in terms of recirculating toxins and contributing to colon health and long-term colon cancer. Like it's not an area that we want to ignore. Uh, and hormone imbalance. Mm-hmm. Mm. There's, there's definitely microbial imbalances that contribute to constipation as well, like not enough E. coli. And that we need to get information on as well. So I just think gut testing is so, so important. Um, and do that to, to acknowledge that it's going to be more than just one explanation. You know, yeah. I was speaking about before, the human body is a complex system that works collectively. So often 
one imbalance could create another and, and there's a bit of a flow-on effect or a vicious cycle there. And that's why information is, is so powerful to understand the mechanisms and the imbalances that can be most of the time addressed naturally. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we didn't talk about this earlier, but I probably should have mentioned it when um, I was having my little rant about PPIs, but you know, these are this in the in the US. These are the second most prescribed drug. Mm, yeah, again on the shelf, like you mentioned in more recent years. Yeah, now so easily access accessed, mm. but sitting only behind lipid re- regulating drugs. Yeah, so you statins. Know, so statins. Yeah, and we've had so much conversation on the show around um, around understanding your lipid profile, around understanding when and when not to use statins. Um, but people, I don't think, are very aware of how prescribed PPIs are. Yeah. Well, it wasn't until I met you that I realised that quite a lot of young people were being prescribed them as well. Like in my world, it was always the more, like I guess the generation above me or the one above. So mm-hmm. it's even more um, you know, unbelievable when we look at the stats and you think about young people that it could just be purely related to stress. And then yes. imagine if the doctor handed a prescription for meditation and that fixed the reflux or the gastric pain or the constipation. Like I love when I hear about doctors prescribing meditation or real yeah. food or a combination of the above. Like that should be the prescription of the future. Absolutely. Not mm. the prescription for the medication, which in the research has been shown to increase your risk of stomach cancer by like 500%. Yeah. There's that too. The long-term complications are quite severe. But the other message I think is a good takeaway, and I'm sure you feel the same, Ellie, is to do your research. Like by all means, I appreciate that you're putting a lot of trust in the in the specialist that you've gone to see, whether that's a doctor or a gastroenterologist, but you don't need to take what they say as a religion immediately. Like my goal is if you're given a prescription is that you could spend some time researching what you're taking, the side effects, understand the alternatives first, because I'm not saying that pharmaceutical intervention is not required. There are plenty of plenty of situations where it's life-saving. Do not get me wrong, but it's the lack of education or personal understanding of what you're about to start taking, which can be quite, um, quite really quite sad because 12 months later, 40 years later, you wish that you had never actually taken that advice as gospel. Yeah, 100%. Do your research and also just inquire when you're sitting there in front of the individual who's prescribing medication, just inquire, you know, understand um, perhaps what's caused what's caused the issues in the first place, understand, you know, what mechanism with this, with this pharmaceutical intervention and ask what are some of the downsides of taking this and how long I've been taking it for. Yeah, have a it. conversation rather than just be told because yeah. you're completely within your rights to have a conversation with your healthcare professional. Yeah, taking that proactive approach to health. Mm. So awesome, guys. So I hope you've had some really great takeaways about the significance of not only stomach acid, but our overall microbiome health, what you can start to do to naturally support your gut health and your production of acid. But reach out to us for more information on testing. If you have questions, we can definitely put together a Q&A episode or a part two, as we mentioned. And we'll speak to you again next week. Thanks, gang.
Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Real. This has been a production of TheWellnessCouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on Facebook.com forward slash TheWellnessCouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.